Karen Dark was a keen runner, climber, and orienteer, but she fell off a cliff and became paralysed from the chest down at just age 21. Whilst initially she thought, I'd rather be dead than paralysed, Karen soon learned that with friends, creativity and perseverance, most things were still possible in her life. And it's thanks to those ingredients that Karen has had a pretty extraordinary life. She's been on a real range of expeditions from climbing El Capitan in Yosemite to crossing the Greenland ice cap on skis and hand biking in the Himalayas. She's also spent over a decade as a full-time athlete. Karen was a silver medalist in the London 2012 Paralympics and she became Paralympic champion in the Rio 2016 Games. Karen has ridden the highs of medals and the lows of injury and near-death experience. Her life journey has called for total commitment, determination and resilience and it has taken her on incredible inner and outer journeys. This episode of Living Adventurously is sponsored by the Yorkshire Dales Millennium Trust, a small charity doing big things in the Yorkshire Dales. They're running a campaign called Together for Trees. Its aim is to plant 100,000 broadleaf trees across the Yorkshire Dales to help counter the actions of climate change, provide a living space for wildlife and somewhere for leisure, recreation and well-being. Get involved and support the campaign today at www.ydmt.org I want to start by asking you about your becoming paralysed because my guess is that without that you would now be off geologizing, being a geologist, happily playing with rocks somewhere else. Is that is that fair? I guess we never know. It's like one of those sliding doors incidents in my life where, you know, nobody plans to be paralyzed and nobody would choose it. And then I guess I still wouldn't. But um, who knows where my life would have gone otherwise? I have no idea. I was a geologist and I suppose I liked, I was attracted to geology because I loved volcanoes and I liked the idea of romping around the wilderness working out there. But I think even the reality in geology for most people is that, you know, most geologists are office-based with a bit of time in the field. So I guess I would have been sat in an office somewhere in the world, who knows where, being a geologist, but life has been very different instead. Yeah, you'd have been far too boring for my award-winning, I always say that, it's not award-winning at all, you'd have been far too boring <laughs> for my non-award-winning podcast. If you're it's saying it's award-winning and it soon will be. Okay, well, fingers crossed, Karen, you can, the next 40 minutes you can make this award-winning. So you said just then, I guess I wouldn't choose to be paralysed. There seems to be a bit of strange ambivalence to that. And is is there in any way that you're glad to have had the accident and that sliding doors change of direction? No. So the only reason I used I guess is because I certainly wouldn't choose to be paralysed. But I am aware that my life since becoming paralysed has been pretty special and I'm not sure I would have had some of the opportunities or experiences that I've had if I hadn't been well I'm sure I wouldn't have done and the perspectives it's given me as well obviously it's given me quite unique perspectives on life so um I wouldn't choose it but and I wouldn't wish it for anybody but at the same time it's taught me a lot I've had an incredible life 
have an incredible life, should I say. I'm still alive. And um, I really appreciate the perspectives and the opportunities that it's given me. So, yeah. So what, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very interesting that the, the good things that can come out of it, but I suppose it's the good things that you have made come out of a bad event. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm just an expert at reframing. Um, there's a few people I've worked with who are kind of in the field of psychology and hypnotherapy, et cetera, and they just say that I seem to be naturally expert in reframing things to see them in a more positive light so maybe I've just done that for my own scenario but I think it's the only thing we can do because when certain things happen to us in life and you know now is a great example with everything that's going on for everybody there's certain things that are within our control and then other things that you know really aren't but one thing we always have control of is our perspective and how we view things and how we think about things so yeah I think we just have to to get the most out of life we have to just try and adopt that kind of perspective that's more positive and that brings more possibility to life rather than focus on what we've lost what we can't do what's not possible doesn't really get us anywhere i think so mm -hmm. mm. yeah you but you are always very positive um so you were only 21 when you were injured in a climbing accident so well more, more just than half your life away now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um and so and geez well it's all sliding doors isn't it a few seconds and your life has changed forever and the next thing you know you wake up from a coma to be told you'd never walk again do you remember the do you remember that conversation i do remember it i think i was probably in a very drug-induced haze at the time i was in intensive care and having all sorts of things injected into me but so i think the real the real impact of that conversation probably didn't hit me until about a month later when i was moved out of intensive care into a spinal injuries hospital where i suddenly saw other people in wheelchairs and the reality of what had happened really hit home and then that difficult stage hit of kind of adapting to this new reality so I think that initial conversation you're still in shock and your body hasn't really isn't really taking it in in terms of what it really means and were you uber positive Karen at that time or were no. you oh no my life is over I'm doomed no or not not uber positive I definitely had a couple of weeks and I don't mean that to sound trite, but I, I did have a couple of weeks where it was really difficult, as in being asleep was far more attractive. My dreams were like dreams and waking was like the nightmare. Um, absolutely. Yeah. But very quickly, I you know, you start to think, well, hang on a minute. There's people around there were people around me in the hospital in far worse positions who couldn't move their arms at all, who had young children, who couldn't hug them, who couldn't breathe without a ventilator. A very close friend of mine died in a climbing accident just um three months after my own accident. And so that was a big kick up the backside. It's like, okay, I'm still alive and he's not. So, you know, that's a gift and I have to make the most of this. So there were lots of kind of people and events and things around me that really shifted my perspective very quickly away from oh no you know this is this is the end of the world feeling to actually okay come on and I guess I think being 21 is probably quite helpful it's it wasn't a bad 
you know, people say, oh, you're so young. That's such a young age for that to happen. But at the same time, when you're young, you're very, very adaptable as well. More adaptable, I think, than when people get a bit older. And I was surrounded by, you know, friends who were interested in sport and the outdoors and really enthusiastic and up for helping me learn how to do things again and have adventures again. So lots of things about my circumstances that I was very fortunate for. You you had just a, f- a few months when you went from being a normal able-bodied person and then boom to the beginning of life being disabled. I wonder, do you, did you notice within those months, I guess what I mean is while it was still fresh, were there some, what did you notice about the difference of perception between how people treated you as able-bodied Karen versus newly disabled Karen? Um, well, the stuff about how I perceived the external world, but probably one of the biggest things was how I perceived myself. So I'd never really thought too much up to that point, maybe unusually for a teenager, but I'd never really thought too much about body image or I'd not really had any huge confidence problems, but suddenly I was very judgmental of how I felt and looked and my image of myself wasn't the image that I matched up to how I was supposed to be. Um, where, Were you embarrassed I, to be disabled? Hey? Were you embarrassed? Yeah. I When I first had to get into a, a wheelchair, so the first sort of three months, you're on bed rest and recovering, letting the, the injuries heal. And then um, it was time to get into a wheelchair, but I was so embarrassed to be seen in a wheelchair that I used to hide back in my bed before visiting hours so that nobody would see me in it. And it was a big, you know, one of those really typical, huge, big tanks in burgundy leather and huge handles on the back and just, you know, just really horrible. But connected with that was my image of myself. I'd, I'd broken my skull, so there were lots of patches on my head where I had a pressure sore and where I had stitches and shaved patches in between my hair. And um, I had like a belly because suddenly, you know, exercising, but not just that, but also being paralyzed from the chest down means I have no core muscles. Well, they obviously exist, but they don't work. So you can't, there's no tone in your in your body anymore that, you know, you would be used to in your legs or in your body. So your whole body image changes completely. And I guess in later life, I've seen friends go through cancer and chemo and lose hair. And I think I can kind of resonate with what they're experiencing through that experience of what I had when I was um, 21 and going through that complete adaptation to body image and change. And then on the outside... I suppose I've realized that quite early on, I mean, maybe it took me a while to get wise to it, but there's people who are like the kind of helpful, but overly helpful, who just kind of want to do everything for you to the point that you're like, hello, I can still do things and I really want to still be able to do things for myself. So in on the one side, that probably taught me or, or I had this kind of fiercely independent streak appeared in me where I really wanted to learn to do stuff for myself as much as I could. Um, and, the, and then there were other people who didn't know how to react or respond. And your kind of friendship circle naturally changed, partly through what you can do as interests, but also partly through people that were able to kind of respond to me as a person rather than not really know what to do and how to be. So, yeah, it was a, it was a big process of change on all levels from the personal yeah. level through to social and... Mm-hmm. I find it hard when I meet someone in a wheelchair to work out whether I should completely ignore it because you're just a human, of course, who just happens not to be able to walk, or whether I should 
be my other side, which is a polite, helpful person. And obviously, there are some things that I could help that person with. And I never quite know what the appropriate thing to do is. What, what's, what's your top tip for, <laughs> for me? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question because I have often put myself in other people's shoes over the years. And clearly early on, you kind of respond perhaps a bit more aggressively or reactively than, than is appropriate to someone's help or um, because you're kind of dealing with that yourself, if you know what I mean. So now I, I, I just like it if people are just themselves with me. It's odd if people don't ask something in a way, because that's kind of like, <laughs> you know, it's almost like, have you never even wondered anything? But it's also odd when people that you've never met before, just the first question they ask you is, you know, so can you still have sex then? Or they just launch in <laughs> with some really personal question and you're going, okay, hi, sorry, what's your name? Who are you? <laughs> real extremes of it. But, you know, just the nice, polite stuff, like someone saying, do you need a hand or can I help? That's, you know, that's really nice. And often I don't need it, but it's nice just to say, thanks so much. I'm all right. And other times um, I'll be like, yeah, great. Thanks. For it. Thanks. So I think it's just being a nice human being, like you just said, thoughtful. <laughs> Offering help is good and it's easy for the person to accept it or say no thanks. But and okay. equally, I think it's on the shoulders of people with disabilities to take responsibility for their reaction to that. So um, some people will be really narky when someone offers them help. And I can see that. I, I think I had a little bit of that in myself at the beginning because you just kind of got that fight going on inside you. But ultimately, hey, it's really nice that someone's thinking and there to ask. Mm, okay. I'm aware there's a Thank chainsaw you. started up in the background. I hope you can't hear it too badly. I can't hear the chainsaw, not yet. Great. If it gets closer, we'll get alarmed. Um, so another thing that interests me a lot is... So, oh, I can hear the chainsaw now. It's coming to get you, Karen. Is um, Before your accident, you, I presume you identify quite strongly as, I am an adventurous young person, and that was a big part of your identity. And then, boom... You wake up in hospital, you can't walk again. And I imagine for a while, at least, you're thinking, my adventures are over. So I'm interested in how you adapt from seeing yourself in one way to a new phase of your life. Yeah, so I definitely had a point at the beginning where it felt too painful to go back into the outdoors and adventure. So for a little while, I thought I maybe just need to change my life completely and get used to living in a more man-made world and do more normal things, whatever normal is. Um, and I will forever remember a very challenging weekend when I went to the Orkney Islands with friends and we camped on a beach there by the sea. It was a wee bothy on the beach and um, it was just so painful to see pathways leading up into the mountains and places that felt so close and so much a part of who I was and where I wanted to be and but I, I couldn't you know it was just like gut-wrenchingly painful and it was after that weekend that I thought okay maybe I just need to stay away from these places because it is too painful but I suppose you you know fundamentally we can try and change who we are but really what are the elements of being attracted to adventure well it's the element of not knowing what's going to happen next it's being in nature it's being with friends it's having experiences together and there are still ways to do all of those things that I've discovered in a obviously different way to before, but it was a long, gradual process of adapting and and not always easy. But 
you seem to it seems to have not um dulled your appetite for um adventures um no you, but you, you know write what? On your... it's really interesting you raise it because i just realized um yesterday someone messaged me about getting if to see if they could get my old bike so it's the first bike i ever had made it's a tandem so you pedal it with your legs on the on the back and your arms on the front so I've, i'm at the front obviously so i've got the steering and the brakes and the person on the back is pedaling with their legs and has the gears and i've not used it now for years because for a decade i've been into paralympic cycling and doing a lot of solo cycling but when i suddenly thought about giving it away or selling it i suddenly had this remembering of why i got it and the reason i got a tandem was so that i could share adventure with someone and although I can do that by going on my regular bike, it's a much more together experience to be on a tandem. And this tandem's taken me across the Himalayas and on all sorts of adventures. And it's just reminded me that I think somewhere in the last decade or so, I've kind of lost a bit of that shared thing. And so I'm kind of inspired to get my tandem back out and see if I can get it working and to get a double kayak again and just get back into those adventures where you really, you know, you're attached together. My friends can't mm. escape. You're really kind of, you know, sharing that experience. So, the adventures you did on that tandem bike—that was when I first met you. Because you were doing a talk or a sort of panel event thing at the Royal Geographic Society in London about how to go on a bicycle adventure. Yeah, and I was, and you uh, just cycled. You were just returning from cycling around the world for four years. Yeah, and uh, gosh, moment. <laughs> yeah, that's a long a long time ago, it seems now. Well, it was a long time ago. Gosh. So you in um your various adventures, you've managed you claim to have uh, come close to dying another five times. So it clearly didn't drum any sense into you, the uh, <laughs> the accident. Would appear not, no. I've not tried yeah. to I've not tried to keep dying, but I'm very <laughs> fortunate to still be here. And I think um I'm glad that I'm actually British, even though I spend a lot of time in Spain. Apparently cats only have so people cats only have seven lives in spain not nine lives so i think i figured out i've only got like one left or something in spain um, <laughs> yeah okay. I, yeah i suppose it introduces that interesting question around risk and um you know adventure and when we're putting ourselves at risk and i think that's something i've not always been good at mitigating so i am trying constantly to get better at it and to make decisions when I take adventures that um, perhaps just reduce that risk a little bit. Because I do actually quite like being alive. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah. Okay. So you've climbed El Capitan, ski skied across Greenland, hand biking in the Himalayas, sea kayaking in Greenland. I don't have time to ask you about all of them. Which one should I ask you about today? I don't think I've what been sea kayaking in Greenland. So don't ask me about oh, that. Oh, in, in Canada. Oh, yeah. And Canada and Patagonia? Austria. Yeah. Uh, well, I clearly All know right. nothing about those I, ones. I don't know which one to ask me about. Um, well, I'll, like, why don't I ask you about... Mm -hmm. Go on. Sorry, no, you carry on. I was going to say the most common question that people ask about all these adventures is which, you know, which one was the best or the most special for some reason. And it's a really... I can't answer the question because you probably get what I mean, but every adventure is so unique and different and there's always special things about each one and for me it's always about the people I'm with and the things that I'm learning and the, the 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 landscape that you're passing through and so it's really hard to pull one out but you know one which 
gets talked about very little but was incredibly special for me was the one sea kayaking from Vancouver to Alaska. Um, nice. It involved leaving my wheelchair behind for three months. Um, it was with, you You might know Suresh, Suresh Paul. Suresh yes. and I used to be together and it was, um, we kind of hatched that plan together and then he was like, brilliant, let's, let's make that happen. And the next person he invited along was a guy called Adrian Disney who's also paralyzed Um and so I was like, great, now we've got two of us that can't walk and one person that can. How on earth is this going to be possible? And we ended up with a group of nine of us in the end. And it was just, when I look back on it, it was out of this world. We had 10, to, 10 weeks in the end on the water, no wheelchairs, sleeping on the beaches, living totally in harmony with the tides and the weather and the moon. Um and just living very, very simply and basically looking out for bears, feeding on salmon from generous fishermen. And I think out of all the, because it was such a sustained length of time, kind of 10 weeks, but to live that in harmony with nature and away from kind of the man-made world in a way was made that one particularly profound for me, but probably the least talked about of any. <laughs> well, let's go with that one then. What an um, incredibly... Um beautiful that's the sort of landscape that i dream about at the moment is a coastline like that so and when when you're in a kayak are you are you just the same as a normal able-bodied person do you have any limitations with your kayaking yeah so um i don't have any core muscles so a lot of kayaking is bracing with your knees to balance the kayak and steer it using your torso to balance and steer as well but also to generate power against the wind so when I'm in a kayak I basically wedge my knees out to the side to make it a bit more stable but I'm very vulnerable if the wind gets up because to, to kind of just like you know really power into it it gets quite difficult it's much easier for the wind to kind of blow me backwards and over and into the ocean so on that journey, I paddled a double sea kayak. So that was, you know, more of a craft, more stable, and that extra balance from another person. Um, I have since taken journeys around Corsica and um, Scotland in a single sea kayak, which have I've had to call a limit on a number of occasions. Sensibly, I have not nearly died on those trips, but <clears throat> probably because I have realized my limitations and gone, okay, this is enough. The sea's big enough. It's time to stop. So, um, yeah, there's definitely limitations, but it's just, I think, so special to be away from the man-made world, away from roads and tracks and trails and buildings and just completely in nature. Hmm. You've, done, you've done quite a variety of different adventures, climbing, Arctic skiing things, biking in the mountains, sea kayaking. Um why do you do why do you why why do you do a variety of things rather than just trying to become an expert at one type of adventuring? Well, I did ten years ago try and become an expert and that's how that's when I got into Paralympic cycling because okay. someone actually said that very thing to me. They said, Every time I see you, you're doing something different. I wonder how could you good you could be at something if you just concentrated on one thing. And I saw, I, it was kind of a point in my life when I thought, actually, it would be really interesting just to kind of apply myself to something particular and perhaps specialize and just see how what it's like to become really immersed in something. I think my whole life, right from being a kid, I've always felt like I'm a kind of jack of many trades and master of none. 
And so there was something about just applying myself that really appealed to see if I could actually get quite good at something. So, um, yeah, that's and, what... And, and quite good means Olympic gold medal. That's quite good. In the end, it worked out okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I, I, um, I suppose I believe that's true of anyone. I, I, maybe I never assign it to me being particularly strong or good. I just always assign it that if you put enough hours work in, enough commitment, and if you like what you do enough to put that time in, then we can all actually get surprisingly good at things. How, how, what were some of the differences between you're changing from this adventuring life to just focused on, I'm on a mission to ride this bike as fast as I can for an important race three years down the line from now? What, what was, what, sorry, what was important? What are the, di- what are the, what are the main differences between that? Though that's because oh, they're two my. very different lifestyles. Yeah, very, very different. So that the focus that you require to do that is um, obviously a very different kind of focus. It's just actually, it's a bit like being on an expedition or an adventure, but every single day, it's like the daily grind. You just have to, it's probably just like being a person with a normal job, to be honest. You have to, you might not be getting up at a specific time, but you just have to stick to a routine and and never give up and keep going and apply yourself and not let the ups and downs of the journey get in the way too much. So I think it is just about that constant commitment to keep keep putting yourself there and going and um, putting in the hours and yeah, just trusting the process, which I think is a bit more akin to perhaps um, applying yourself in daily life to to a job, whereas an adventure is kind of just something that feels much more, to me, exciting with a focused timescale. It's much easier to focus and apply yourself when you can see a timescale of three months or six months or a, a few weeks rather than something which is stretching four years ahead of you. Hmm. So how then do you work hard today? Because if you just skive today, and then do your riding tomorrow, it's not going to really make much difference four years down the line if you Skype just once, <laughs> is it? So how how do you go about doing a good job today when the end is four years down the line? Well, yeah, so you don't Skype that once, basically. How? <laughs> how do you not Skype? Yeah. Um. So I often just think every day makes a difference. Every little step makes a difference. Every moment makes a difference. Um, and I think that's true of everything in life. Every thought makes a difference. Every, you know, every little, the devil is in the detail, so to speak. So I just remind myself of that. And the other thing, like in terms of motivation, clearly that's challenging sometimes. So what really works for me with that um, is thinking about how I will feel the next day or the next week if I don't do it today. So mm. I know that I'll feel my future self will feel disappointed or that I've let myself down a little bit or that I should have tried harder and that I might not like myself as much. My future self might not like myself as much if I just keep making excuses and skipping things. So that's kind of the conversation that goes on in my head. And it usually means that I do it, but there's obviously days. So I did skive on Sunday, but it was a conscious decision of actually, you know what, you've traveled, you're exhausted, you, you're tired, you haven't slept, you've got a banging headache. Maybe this is actually a good time not to train. So I think it's about making wise decisions. And in the past, I've not done that. I've always put myself under the cosh and done it regardless. 
But after the Rio Gold, I was really burnt out for a while. I was exhausted and it felt like my whole body had just been kind of pushed and pushed and squeezed to the point of um, of burning and frying and not being able to sort of function just for daily things anymore. So this time um, I am, you know, on a journey to try and get one more Paralympic Games out, but I'm trying to do it in a much wiser way and listen. But it's really interesting because there's that little voice inside that goes, uh, but is it really wiser or is it just actually not quite good enough anymore? Because you, you know, because you need to put in those extra hours. And I don't know the answer, but I just know mm. that it feels right to try and do it more wisely. And I really believe that if every cell in your body is actually being listened to and treated a bit more kindly, um, as well as you know pushing yourself because that's part of it, um, then hopefully those results are still possible. But we'll see. Are you motivated by your rivals, the thought that they're getting out of bed and doing the ride, therefore you should, or is it an internal process? I used to be. So I used to always want to train on Christmas Day, for example. That's exactly what I was thinking of. No one else is training today. Or um so there that that has definitely helped me in the past. I'm not sure if it's that relevant anymore, to be honest. And I've never been it's funny because I'm, I'm, you know, who really cares who rides some strange little handbike fastest in the world? It's a totally pointless, ridiculous kind of exercise. <laughs> but actually, you know, there's also so much amazingness in it. it. There's purpose and meaning. And when you get to Paralympic Games and you're part of this event and this atmosphere and all of these very, very special people, not just, not at all just the athletes, but all of the people that have supported and helped and been part of creating performance it's really quite an incredible feeling and atmosphere and extremely um yeah special so yeah rivals don't necessarily motivate me but they inspire me definitely and when i go to a race i'm always inspired by my rivals and more so more than ever when i lose because you just think my goodness i know how hard i've been working so what have they been doing yeah uh-huh. Well, so you're a silver medalist in London 2012 and you gold medal in Rio 2016. Um, But instead of those races, please, can you tell me about when you did not win a medal in the road race in London 2012 when you came fourth? (laughs) Yeah. So that was a memorable race. So London 2012, my goal was to get to the Paralympic Games. It was all about is it even possible to get us one in my own country? How amazing would that be? And it seemed very, very far-fetched to even participate because at that point, when I first started training, I think I'd done a couple of races and I'd come last in them both. <laughs> when I say last, I mean, so one of them, I remember the finish line didn't even exist anymore. <laughs> and the drink stations are all being packed up when I got to them. And the other one, I got lapped by Rachel Morris, who was the Olympic champion from the Beijing Paralympics. I think I got lapped twice by her or something. And it's pretty depressing when you've been training hard and you think you're doing well. And then, you know, someone laps you a couple of times. So really, it just seemed impossible to get to London. So when I got there, I had trained super hard and super smart and really done things differently and I had made a really big jump in my performance which was a surprise so I won the silver medal in my time trial and the following day or two days later we had the road race and normally in a road race um the way the categories work I end up being bunched into a category with lots of women who have all of their core muscles so they've 
in theory got more function than I've got. So I never seemed to do that well in that race against all of the women. So I never, ever expected to be up for a medal. And my teammate, Rachel, is one of those. She's got much more core, she's, you know, core muscles. But during the race, we found ourselves kind of cat and mouse, is, is, that, the, is that the saying? But anyway, neck yeah. and neck the whole way round. And every time we got to the top of the big steep hill, I fell just behind her. And then every time we went through the bumps and the downhills and the technical stuff, I was pulling ahead again. And then at one point on the last lap, I think she suggested that um, a medal had once been shared, a bronze medal by some swimmers, and maybe we should try and cross the finish line together. And Rachel hadn't won a medal in her time trial. And I just thought, what a great idea. Let's just do that. Um, anyway, it turned out it created complete chaos. That's not what you're supposed to do in Olympic Games. Apparently, we could have been disqualified. I didn't realize so that. So how, how did you cross the line together? Sorry to interrupt you. So we rode up. We were kind of neck and neck right round. And then we, I think we made the decision like about half a K or a K before the end. We realized that we were racing each other for the bronze medal. So we knew that and we could see we could see that there was nobody close to us. So we just um, went in for it and just, just before the end, about 50 meters before the finish line, held hands and rolled across the line. Our digital times were identical. <clears throat> and um, so the organizers didn't really know what to do. They took a, they looked at a photo finish and in the end decided that Rachel's wheel was maybe a millimeter ahead of mine or something. Gave her the bronze medal and invited me up onto the podium to kind of share in a taste of it. So it was a pretty amazing thing. Um, lots of judgment from the outside world about it. Whether there was, I don't like to categorize male and female, but most of the males in my life were absolutely livid and saying, "You, you could have won that. What were you thinking? What were you doing?" The male psychologist from British Cycling like followed me around for the next two days, thinking I was going to have some kind of breakdown. I think. And most of the women in my life were almost crying, going, oh, that was such a beautiful thing. It's amazing. That's what the Olympic spirit should be all about. So um, there was lots of judgment in the press and from in my family and personal stuff. But I, it, to be honest, it, I've never been that rocked by it. I think the out, the rocking that happened around me made me doubt myself for a moment. And then I was like, no, that's, that felt right to me. I have, a, I have a medal. I'm totally made up. And that was a really cool experience and i'm glad that i did it so yeah well i, I think i was in the female camp because I, I remember watching that and i shed a tear at that it was amazing i think that's great yes yes fantastic um you're there's an explorer in you i'm moving on now from olympics yes um, good. explorer between the traditional way of exploring other lands and cultures and then there's the internal world of exploring so hmm. what, what's life taught you about looking within yourself from your through your experiences and challenges yeah so I suppose that journey began quite early on as well um realizing that alongside the physical challenges of being paralyzed there was a big emotional journey that I was on and I first I suppose, experienced a different approach to that through Chinese medicine and acupuncture, which I later went on to study, but found it really helpful. Well, I thought it was helpful, but basically every time I went to see the acupuncturist for an hour, I just, he stuck a couple of needles in and I would just instantly cry. But it got me really interested in the connection between our mind, our emotions, our physicality, and perhaps what's going on on a, on a, on a more energetic level with our bodies. Um, and that took me on a whole journey parallel to all of this outside stuff that we're talking about, which um, 
I've also done all sorts of interesting things from being chopped open by a spirit surgeon in Brazil to being part of kind of group cellular transformational healing workshops and all sorts of stuff with different <laughs> names and labels, which is hard to describe. But I suppose what that has done has really connected me with that, um, that inv- maybe a little bit with, you know, that untouchable and invisible, hard to define aspect of life where I think we all know that there's an element and whether we want to call it a spiritual element or an energetic element or maybe some people identify it as religion I don't for me it's there's just this kind of element that we have which um is hard to touch and for me when I go into nature actually that's a huge part of it is like it's connecting with the earth and the landscape and the rhythms of nature and I just think we're intertwined with that to such a deep level that we don't really understand or can't really necessarily articulate or measure, but that our health and our well well-being is massively impacted by not only our thoughts and what's going on in our brain, but the kind of environments that we're spending time in, the people that are in that environment, the kind of messages and energy that everything around us is putting out. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's uh, unusually wise for my podcast. Mm, <laughs> um, oh, maybe we'll win an award. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's what we're going for. So, l- different people have very different opinions of themselves and opinions of what they believe is possible in their life. And um, you wrote that you think that they, well, you've, not, you've written that they're based on our childhood our life experiences, our social and cultural environments and so on. And I agree with all of those things. But over time, has your um, thoughts about what is possible, do you think it's a flexible thing or you just have those things from early in your life and you're stuck with those perceptions of what you're capable of? Oh, no, I'm not into stuckness. Everything's possible and flexible (laughs) and our brains are completely, you know, the neuroplasticity that we've got. We know so little about our brains and how they work or about the universe and how everything's connected and interconnected. And and, and increasingly as I go through life, I'm, I'm amazed at some of the things that happen purely through intention and imagination and staying kind of connected with that, with a vision that I've got. You know, the whole gold medal in Rio, None of that was really about me being the best athlete. Um, I trained hard. I was equal. I'm sure I was equally good as many of the other athletes there. But what happened with that was that I bought gold shoes and a gold phone cover, and I started talking about gold, and everyone around me started talking about gold, and then they started saying, "When you win gold," and I'm like, "I don't even know if I can, but okay, we'll go with that." People were buying me gold gifts and gold biscuits, and you know, it's just like you fill your life with that intention. Gold biscuits won't help. <laughs> it was a, I didn't eat it I shared it <laughs> it was a giant one as well but mm. um yeah I think there's just a lot that that we don't understand about how things are possible and uh I suppose that experience that I briefly mentioned about being chopped open by a spirit surgeon in Brazil it, it didn't physically make any difference to my body as I thought it potentially would do but actually what it really did was shifted my mindset and opened me up to the fact that we grow up in certain cultures with certain paradigms and beliefs. And when I mentioned to people in Brazil what I was doing there, they didn't bat an eyelid. They were just like, oh, right, yeah, great. You're there to see, you're here to see 
a spirit surgeon. And then you come back to Britain and mention it and people just kind of take a few steps away from you and yeah. you need to be admitted to the uh, local psychiatric hospital. So, you know, different cultures, different paradigms, and who knows what's true and real and right. Mm, yes. Um, Karen, what brings you joy these days? Oh, what brings me joy? Spending time with special friends, relaxing in a kind of, you know, I spend a lot of time on my big sofa um, and I like to do that. And I quite like meditating when I'm doing that. And I don't know if, if you call it meditating, I do all sorts of things when I'm meditating, but I really enjoy that. I, being on my bike brings me joy. Being outside in nature and rocks and sunshine brings me joy. Lots of things bring me joy. Kindness, receiving it, giving it. <laughs> um, and what about freedom? Um, I, you read, wrote that your journey with paralysis has enabled you to realize that feeling free does not necessarily require the physical ability to go to those places. So what, what, what are your thoughts on freedom? Because I think that's quite linked to adventuring as well, isn't it? It is. I think, you know, it's easy to think that there's more freedom somewhere else than we are in life. And that's sometimes a big reason why many people throw in their life and take off and do something different. And I'm sure that on some level does give us all more freedom. But I think really there's many levels to freedom. And I've realized through some of the recent adventures I've been taking cycling across continents and some of the companions that I've had on those trips. So there's one trip in particular um, through America where I was with two two companions who I didn't know very well at the beginning. Um, and one definitely, well, he was trying to lose 45 kilos. So I guess he had a problem with food. And the other one, it turned out, was he had a really serious alcohol addiction and it made me realize that our freedoms are all different and um, our prisons are all different. And so I think it's working on that world inside of ourselves to to give ourselves as much internal freedom as we can, if that makes sense. Mm. Because our external circumstances don't always allow it, whether that's because you're paralyzed or because you have five kids or, you know, whatever it might be, external circumstances don't always give us the perceived freedom that we might want. So I think it's about working on that inner world and finding it within ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You, 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 um, carrying on about freedom was, um, on your blog, a blog recently talked about a study into participation in extreme sports, that the motivations of extreme sports, adventuring types is not just about risk taking and adrenaline but an exploration of freedom and i found that a really fascinating article do you remember the one i'm talking about i do yeah yeah no i found it interesting too mm, and that, freedom uh, from constraints freedom from the need for control um freedom as a choice and responsibility that's a good phrase yeah 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 i know that article really resonated with me as well and got me thinking about what adventures have taught me because I think one of the big reasons I like to go on adventures is not just because of the experience I have out there but what it teaches me and what I learn that I can bring back to everyday life and that's a big part of what you do as well is sharing that connection between adventure and everyday life with people which I think is probably the most vital part of it. Well speaking of that of trying to um, encourage more people into the world of adventure um, the world of adventure is fairly um, homogenous in many ways in the outdoors and outdoor pursuits and 
sport and nature and however you categorize it so can you can I ask you for a couple of minutes about disability and adventure and what we can do to get more help more people get out and have their own adventures yeah so well I guess I, I suppose I touched on it early on that in many ways I was lucky that when I became paralyzed a I, ha- I already had this adventurous life so I kind of knew that I was motivated to get it back and I was surrounded by people that helped me do that. But I think probably one of the biggest barriers is the cost of equipment is a big barrier. And then having people that are just positive and encouraging to do stuff with you. So um, I think if there's anyone out there listening to this who has a disability, then I'd encourage you to just to be brave to step by step, just try something new, maybe just, you know, like anyone, get out of your comfort zone a little bit, try something and not let your disability stop you, but ask questions, you know, get in touch with me or anyone else with different kinds of disabilities and ask them how they do things. And then if you're listening and you you know someone with a disability, then you can't force someone to do something. But one of the things that would really helped me was just having um, a couple of friends go, when I was in hospital, come to me and say, hey, look, you could learn to ski and I'd be really up for coming with you. What do you think? Let's go and explore this together. And it's really nice if someone does that and just can support you and encourage you and go on a little journey with you. And I think um, that's really special too. And most places now, you know, things are a long way down the line from when I was first paralyzed. So there's many parts of the country now where there are inclusive cycling projects. Cycling UK are doing fantastic work helping to develop that side of it. I'm doing a, a, a session for them tomorrow, two till three tomorrow afternoon, all about cycling with a disability. If anyone, well, it will have happened by the time this podcast goes out. But um, I'm sure it yeah. was brilliant. <laughs> There's lots of stuff going on which wasn't happening when I was paralyzed. And so just go out and find those opportunities, I think, and give mm-hmm. things a go. And if you can so find a great. friend that's willing to try with you, then it makes it far more fun than doing it on your own. That's great that you you say that things are far more developed than from in your time being paralyzed so what still needs to change um well ultimately i would love to see equipment for sports for people with disabilities come down in price but i don't know whether that's ever going to really happen or not it may just be that it has to keep relying on people being generous whether that's through i know i know people who have crowdfunded for things or applied to charities but yeah i mean the price of adaptive equipment is is pretty big like most hand bikes don't come in any cheaper than three or four grand these days and that's a lot of money you can't just pop down to your local halfords and think you know what i've got a few hundred quid spare let's give this a go or pick up a second hand one easily so yeah that's Mm. still a a challenge okay and are there any um individuals or organizations who are doing really good stuff in the world of disability and adventure who can give a shout out to there are loads of organizations doing good stuff and i I don't know i'm kind of loath to give a shout out to any in particular in terms of spinal cord injury and adventure the backup trust still lead the way leading running some courses um the spinal injuries association is a great source of information for other other charities and they kind of are now the umbrella organization that connects all of these others so there's, there's there's tons of stuff out there the Calvert Trust, obviously, is a network of outdoor centers who do great stuff. So I think just contact any of these kind of organizations and, and, the, and they'll be able to find others and clearly many others for other specific disabilities, whether that's 
visual or sensory or learning. You know, there's lots of great organizations out there. That's good. You got you sounding quite positive. I probably shouldn't be surprised. We sounding quite positive about it. It's not all doom and gloom and this no. sucks for disabled people were doomed no no the, the opportunities exist and um i think it's you've just got to be proactive and go out there and find them or just even you know it doesn't take too much work to find them i think and mm. yeah so i always end my podcast with a few questions from my lucky deck of cards um okay. are you up for a few a few of these give it a whirl if you don't want to answer any you can say pass but i reckon you'll be up for the challenge so you have to tell me when to stop Stop. <laughs> what is an absurd thing that you love? <laughs> an absurd thing. <laughs> Oof. God, that's a challenging one. Is it absurd that I no, I don't think that's absurd. Um so the last per that by chance that question came up with the last interview I did and that person chose custard. <laughs> well, I was about to say, is it sometimes I feel like people might judge me for the kind of that I'm so much into this unusual world of energy work. So I recently went to Ibiza and everyone was like, Oh, did you go clubbing? Did you have a wild time? And actually I went there to do this kind of healing thing called network spinal analysis where basically sat in very loud music with my body wobbling for a few days doing all kinds of crazy things so is that absurd i don't know peanut butter well, i'm addicted to can't even buy it anymore i just spoon it out of the jar <laughs> smooth or crunchy either any love it all <laughs> okay they're good choices right we'll do a couple more Tell when stop stop If you could magically change one thing in your life, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh. Oh. I would be... I believe one thing. Oh, that's really tough. <laughs> it's tempting to say I would walk. Mm. I'd like to walk up a hill again. It would be really incredible mm. to be able to walk up a mountain and see the view. And I'd like to walk up it with someone that I was very in love with and that they were very in love with me. That would be special. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, Put it into the universe. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, that's a, a, good, a good choice. Okay, you ready? Stop. How would your life be different if you were a millionaire? Oof. I'd probably be far more stressed and I'd be worrying about I'd be spending a lot of time thinking about who to give the money to I guess a millionaire is probably not that much money anymore but you know if you were like some kind of multi-millionaire I'd be wanting to change the world for the better and I'd be really con I think I'd be really conflicted about how to do that and where to put the money and what to support and yeah what Jeff Bezos earned thirteen. So Jeff Bezos earned thirteen billion dollars yesterday. You'd find that quite stressful. Who's Jeff you? Bezos? Oh, Mr. Amazon, richest well, man in the world. I'd like. Okay, well, I'd like to think that I wouldn't find it stressful, but the reality is that I would. But also, if I, 
had the ability to earn, if I found a way to earn that much money, I would love to, you know, make the world a better, fairer, cleaner place, do something amazing with it. But I'm not saying that would be an easy task. I think that'd be a very huge project and I'd need a very, very good team to help me figure out how to do that. (laughs) Okay. Right. We'll do one more question, Karen. Stop. Oh, this is a good question to ask for a uh, Paralympian. What are you willing to sacrifice for ambition? (laughs) I don't know how to answer that question. It seems like I would never be willing to sacrifice my health or being, I, I would never want to sacrifice trying to be a good person so i don't know that's it (laughs) because that's what you wouldn't sacrifice what 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 have you sacrificed to be a paralympian champion it's hard to know isn't it it's like another sliding doors thing you don't know what (laughs) you've missed out on maybe i've sacrificed maybe i've sacrificed some kind of family life i've never i'm i'm single and i've not got a family and I don't know whether that would have happened if I wasn't doing this. Who knows? Um, I've definitely sacrificed my health to a point and then had to call it back various times. So that's been a fine line probably. So yeah, probably, but I don't know, like, but you know, fundamentally one of the things for me about being, focusing on, on riding my bike and being a Paralympian is that I, it brings me joy. It's something I really love and it's not the competition. It's not about winning medals. It's just about that, Folk, daily fitness and health and well-being and focus and go outside see nature and all the elements that cycling brings it's like the perfect excuse to sign out from some of the other stuff in life that i might not want to be doing so <laughs> it may you know people talk about sacrificing their nightlife and their social life and actually i'm quite happy to go to bed at 10 o'clock and get up a bit early and go outside and miss out on some of those things that other people might find were really sacrificial. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, geez, it's bringing you joy. It's, and that's a good thing. Um, Karen, thank you so much for uh, taking time to chat to me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'll be uh, cheering you on at Rio, Rio 2020 in to- 2021. Tokyo. Tokyo, even. Tokyo, <laughs> Tokyo 2020 hopefully in 2021 so yeah good luck karen and uh thanks for having me thanks for being asking some alternative questions what's the most boring question you normally get asked in interviews oh i don't know what's it what was it like to become paralyzed you kind of asked that you just reframed it a bit (laughs) okay yeah yeah okay well i'll resist from asking that and just say thanks very much and let you go i've answered it so many times all right thanks okay thanks very much karen I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously.
which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.